morning, church family. Welcome to the Lord's Day here at Evergreen SGV. And uh, it is a privilege to be able to preach God's Word. And thank you for the opportunity to do it again. And I just, just to let you know I, I, about building things. I'm a natural builder in terms of uh, not physical things, but I've enjoy, always enjoyed building teams. I have shared before for the last 30 years, that's all I've been thinking about. How do we build teams? How do we bring people together? And, you know, in the sports world, some of us who follow international basketball, all right, our team, Team USA, finished seventh year in the, in the World Cup of basketball, which is unheard of. Right, and some of us may be hard about like, oh, what's wrong? We got a bunch of all stars and stuff, but it's harder than it is. You bring a collection of all stars from the NBA to come together and to play on a different style of basketball with a different group of people, and it's hard. And it's hard. And as I think about this, every team, whether it's a basketball team or a church family, has to come to one conclusion. We all have to develop a deep, profound understanding of one thing. Okay, and this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to help develop this within our church. I'll talk about it at the end of the sermon here. I'll, I'll tell you what this one thing is. Okay, but everything, whether you're a sports team or organization, a family unit, a church family, we need to understand one thing in order to be a good teammate. Okay, and we'll talk about it at the end. So this is what Jesus is doing in John 13. He's building a team of disciples. This is what he's doing. He's saying goodbye, I'm leaving. And, 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 and he's basically handpicked 12 disciples. One of them left already, so there's 11 now. And he's handpicked a bunch of fishermen. He's picked a tax collector, which means that he was a, a, a swindler of money, a dishonest person. He's handpicked a, a, a political zealot, which, which means he was a terrorist. He'd, he'd perhaps murder people. So this is the type, and type of people, the type of men that Jesus has collected. And Jesus said, I'm going. And by the way, you're going to be tasked to advance the kingdom to the entire world. And you're going to have a lot of opposition. And so Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, I'm going away. And the, what the disciples have been talking about amongst each other, who's the greatest, Jesus? Who's going to be the greatest amongst us? And Jesus is saying, hey, don't focus on these things. He just says, let's focus on loving one another. This is the command that Jesus gives. Don't focus on who's the greatest. Focus in, focus in on loving one another. And he showed us how to love one another. He's, he washes the disciples' feet. He, he, he uh, engages Judas, who's about to betray him, and he knows it. And now today, Jesus demonstrates a different type of love. He admonishes Peter. All right, as we talked about in the children's message, Peter would deny Christ just in a matter of days or hours, matter of fact. And so we'll be at a John 13, um, verse 34 to 38. So please rise. I'll be reading out the NASB version. Keep in mind, Jesus is building his team, his team of 11 right now. <clears throat> God's word says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Verse 38, Jesus' response. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to see your son more clearly through your preaching of your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. So right here, this is Jesus giving this great commandment, love one another, and here's Peter's response. Where are you going? I mean, he's way less interested in, okay, how do I love? How do I love this way, Jesus? What does it mean? What does it look like? Am I even supposed to love this guy sitting next to me who's bothering me? Right? That's not the question. It's where are you going? And I love Peter because Peter reminds me of myself. All right, Peter is, you know, he's less interested in the command and he just wants to be with Jesus. I, I believe Jesus, uh, Peter has a genuine love for Christ. Obviously not perfect, but he shows his genuineness. And Jesus says, you can't come with me. Right now you can't come with me, but you will. You will die and you will be with me. But that's not till later. But, and then <clears throat> Peter says, why? How come I can't come with you right now? You know, he wants to be with Jesus. Genuine. Genuine. He's genuine and loves the Lord. And you got to admire that. Peter genuinely loves the Lord. And he even says, I will die for you. I will die for you. And in some sense, this is commendable because in a few hours, after this upper room discourse, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Who's the one that actually steps up, pulls out a sword, and tries to defend Jesus? Peter. So we could be hard on Peter in some ways, but Peter had a sincere intention, like, no, I'm going to protect you, Jesus. All right? It was just kind of a miracle because he cuts off Malchus's ear and with all those soldiers. Really, he should have been killed right there on the spot. In some ways, he would have been true to his word. But Jesus miraculously protects Peter and he's able to escape, which sets up the, his denial in a few hours after. But so I believe Peter had a genuine love for the Lord, just like we do. All right? Just like many of us do. We have a genuine love to, for the Lord. And, but he had it all mixed up. Who was supposed to die for who? Right? This was not about Peter. This is about Jesus dying. All right? And just Jesus made it clear. And Jesus knows Peter's strengths. He knows he's bold. He, he's out there. But he also knows Peter's weakness. And he's in the business of building up Peter. Because he knows that Peter is going to be one of the great leaders, as we heard about earlier, to lead the disciples, to lead the early church, to write some of the Bible. So Jesus is in the process of building him up. Okay, to building up a leader for, for the kingdom. What would you do if you're in this situation? If you're Jesus and a friend comes to you and makes some claims which you know is not right, what would you do? And today we're talking about admonishment. So what is admonishment? In the New Testament, it talks, it's mentioned about seven times. Paul talks about it a ton. Admonishing carries this type of idea, so, so we're speaking the same language. Admonishing means that you're warning others of danger. Watch out. Don't go near the street. There's a lot of cars there. You could get hurt. Watch out. Or correct wrong course of life. All right, you shouldn't be living like that. It's, it's not going to end well with you. This is not pleasing to the Lord. You shouldn't do that. Admonishment also has rebuke from sinful ways. You're an outright sin. Hey, you need to repent. You need to repent. 
It also reminds us of the right way. It may not be an actual confrontation, but just constant reminding how we're to live. This is what admonishment is like. You're basically a positive influence in somebody's life. You're just, you're living life may just serve as an admonishment to those around you. Like, you know, I don't know if you've been around us, but sometimes in a locker room, you know, people would, uh, you know, say some choice words or say some choice jokes, if you could imagine, and they look at you, oh, sorry, Rocky, as, as, as was offensive to me, right? Your life may very much serve that as, as for people around you. But this is what Jesus does for Peter. He actually doesn't let it slide, right? And Peter says, I will lay my life for you, Dale. I will lay down my life for you. Jesus easily could have just said nothing and moved on to the next thing. Jesus didn't do that. For point number one, loving admonishment confronts one another. He didn't let it go. What did Jesus say in verse 3? Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Would you really do that? Kind of gentle, kind of broaching the topic. And then he goes, truly, truly, now he's making a point. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Peter! You gotta let me down. Not only once, but twice, but three times before the rooster crows. And he, and he knows that Peter's intentions are good. He knows that, but he also he knows that Peter will be courageous with the other disciples and Jesus around. But he also knows Peter will cower when he's alone, with no disciples around him, when Jesus isn't around him. A simple slave girl will ask them as they're huddled around the fire in a few hours, Do you know, don't you know this man? You had the same accent. Don't you know him? No, I don't know him. Now, now that, he's, he, he, he swears, I don't know him. So Peter, Jesus knows this. He goes, you will deny me. So Jesus confronts him. Jesus confronts him. He didn't let it go. He says, nah, I love you too much, Peter. I'm not going to let you go. I'm counting on you, Peter. I'm counting on you, Peter. I'm not going to let this go. We're going to address this issue right now. There's other people around, but this is the most important. I must talk to you. And how does Jesus do this? You know, I mean, Jesus had a relationship with Peter. They spent three years together. They went fishing together. They, you know, they walked on the water together for a moment, you know. They did all that stuff. They ate together. They ministered together. He sat under Jesus' teaching. They had a relation. He knew Peter. He knew Peter's heart. He knew Peter genuinely loved him, right? So you may be sitting there like, well, you know, how do I do this? Well, he, Jesus and Peter had a relationship. They even had history together. I mean, in Matthew 16, Jesus actually commends Peter. He goes, who do people say that I am? And then Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Spirit of God comes on Peter and is able to answer that. And then and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon. Blessed are you. You're blessed. That's great. But in the same breath, Peter begins to rebuke, takes Jesus aside, begins to rebuke him. No, you're not going to die for me, Jesus. You're not going to die. And then Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Right. So there's, there's all that in their relationship. They have a lot of history together. They have a lot of history. This is how they do it. This is how they live together. As I'm here just praying over a church family, I think to our church family, do we have genuine relations like, relationships like this with one another here? Right now, I want you to just take time to think about this in your heart. 
Think about your closest relationships here at Evergreen SGV. This is the people perhaps you serve with. This is people perhaps you go eat lunch with all the time. These people you fellowship with on a recreational level. Think about these dear brothers and sisters right now, right? Do you engage in these type of conversations with one another? Do you talk about these things, about issues of sin and temptation? Do you confront one another when you see each other in those social settings? Do you do that? Do you think to yourself, that's not how Christians act. Therefore, you love your brother or sister and you talk to them. This is not how it is. I mean, think about your branches that you've been a part of for decades, perhaps. Think about all your one-on-one relationships that you're a part of. And your own marriage, do you, in, in, do you enter into these conversations with your own wife or your husband, your own husband? Do you talk to one another? Do you talk to your children about these things? This is where we need to go. This is because, look, at Jesus is telling us what love looks like right now. Keep in mind, Jesus gave a huge command, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You are to love one another. He, and then all of a sudden he follows it up with the admonishment of Peter. Jesus is living it out for us. What does love look like amongst one another, brothers and sisters? And what was Peter's response? This is point number two here. How did Peter respond? Admonishment is a two-way street. So how did he respond, the receiver take it? Loving admonishment is blocked by pride. He didn't hear it. He ran right through the stop sign. He had a bright red light, you know, as you're driving down Santa Anita or something. You got the big bright light. He just ran right through it. Jesus was giving him the brightest red light possible. He goes, I'm telling you, this is what's going to happen, Peter. Proverbs 16, 18 talks about pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. And keep in mind now, all right, this whole upper room conversation, the backdrop for the disciples is who is the greatest Remember that. Remember that's what they're talking about. That's what, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest disciple? And in and, 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 and Matthew and Mark, this is what Peter says. Even if everyone falls away from you, Lord, I will not. Even if John or James, Andrew, Phil, these guys uh, turned back, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm the greatest. Right, Jesus? Isn't that right? Right, think about this now. That's the, 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 what the discussion has been about with the disciples. Peter makes this claim. This is even before Jesus' uh, prediction about the rooster crowing. This is what they're talking about. And like I said, and Jesus confronts us. No, you're, not, you're actually going to deny me. You're going to be just like every one of these guys, Peter, before the rooster crows. And, and Peter could have been like, oh, really? And just take, taking it back. But he follows it up with... In Matthew 26, again, I will not die. I will die with you. I will die with you. I will not deny you. He just falls, no, Jesus, you're wrong. He almost perhaps rebukes Jesus. No, you're wrong. You got the wrong guy in mind. Pride blocks loving admonishment. There's no way. There's no way. Peter was way too much into himself. Because I'm not going to be like these other people. There's no way I could do this. Loving admonishment is a two-way street. It's the, it's the giver, but also the receiver. We all have to know none of us are perfect. 
<laughs> we're all in this battle, this up and down battle versus sin in the flesh. We're constantly, we're on in this battle constantly. Sometimes God allows us to have victory. Sometimes we're down on the dumps right there. I get it. I live this life myself. We need to be humble. We need to be humble with one another. No one is perfect. Now, let me ask you a question. I said it earlier that Jesus is showing us how to, how to love. Do you see this as loving or unloving by Jesus? Right? Because it's Jesus, you should say it's loving. He's perfect. He's the perfect one. Now think in your own life now. Has anyone confronted you with sin? Was, that, was it loving or unloving? Think about that. Have you confronted a friend or, or a brother or sister about sin? Let me give you an illustration here. Last week, I came across a man wearing a key lime polo. Okay, key lime polo. That's how vivid it was to me. I noticed his shirt. Key lime polo. Older man. I've never met him before. He grabs me and goes, I need to speak to you. I said, okay. And he just basically said, hey, your father is bleeding in his head. We need to take a flap off of his skull and stop the bleeding, clean the bleeding out, and then put the flap back on, stitch him back up. And by the way, if you don't do anything, there's a 1% chance he'll get better, right, if you just leave it alone. And I'm like, okay, that's not what I wanted to hear going into the hospital. That's not what I wanted to hear. I was like, wow. And I have to make the choice on this, me, my brother, my mom. I'm, I was like, that's not, that's not what I wanted to hear. But it wasn't loving by the doctor to tell me this. Absolutely. Absolutely, it would have been malpractice for him to say, here's an aspirin and go home, right? That's, that's not right. This was absolutely loving because he believed that this, although this was tough news, this is the, the news that I needed to hear to help my dad get better. So in, that, in the physical realm, we completely understand that. That's absolutely loving. And in some sense, I think for our church family and just for a Christian community, it's easier for us to accept the foot washing, I go, man, that's Jesus, the last person on the planet in the universe that should be washing anybody's feet. And he's washing the disciples' feet, and we're like, wow, wow. I think it's much easier to accept that type of love when someone brings us some food or, or gives us a ride. Something like that. It's, it's, that is definitely love. I think we're able to receive that and see that as love. I think we're very strong at that at our church family, which is a blessing. Praise God. But I think admonishment is a little bit harder to see as loving. In a culture, perhaps, whether it's Asian culture or just evangelical culture, I don't know, where there's some obstacles to seeing this as loving, you know? I mean, the, the culture that we are immersed in may be about avoid conflict at all costs. All right? It may be like, hey, maintain peace at, at, is the highest aim. Let's maintain peace. Let's not rock the boat. I mean, think about it. You know, you're, you're, this is a dinner. This is a dinner. This is the last supper. This is a very emotional. Communion has been instituted. This is a very emotional time. Jesus could say, you know what? I don't want to mess up the mood here. Let's not mess up the mood. You know, perhaps like, you know, Christmas dinners or birthday dinners. And eh, I don't want to mess the vibe up. I'm not going to talk about this right now. Right? I get that. But Jesus didn't go there. Perhaps, you know, you don't want to be seen as judgmental. The Bible says, do not judge. All right? Do not judge. 
is admonishment judging. What well, we've been growing in our staff, I want to just share a little bit of our staff culture. We've been talking about what loyalty is. All right, what well, loyalty to one another is this. You will tell me what I need to hear. Staff member, you will tell me what I need to hear so I could do this job as faithfully as I can for Christ. Right? Don't we want that? I don't want to look at Christ someday, sorry, Lord, I, I was unfaithful. Or I don't want to look, come back to the church family and say, sorry, I was unfaithful to what I was supposed to do. Sorry, Charlotte, children, sorry, I was unfaithful in what I was supposed to do. So I say, I, hey, guys, help me out. Brothers, sisters, help me out. Tell me what I need to hear. And Christ, the head of the church, he commands us to restore one another. He shows it in John 13, but he also commands it in Matthew 18. And we mentioned it briefly from the pulpit. It's like a four-step process in restoring a sinning brother or sister. Step number one is just go to him privately, one-on-one. Hey, brother, um, I, uh, I see the sin in your life. You know, you need to repent. I come to you because I love you. I care about you. And it's, if he listens to you, you want over a brother. Praise God. Done. No more steps. Step number two, he doesn't listen to you. All right, bring another brother or sister with you, and one or two, and then come to him. Basically, you're recruiting more help to say, hey, brother or sister, you need to repent. The sin is going to devour you up. You need to repent. If, if they listen, they repent. You want over a brother. Done. No more steps. But if they refuse, you listen to that. Then you recruit the entire church, uh, Jesus says. Then you tell it to the whole church, and the whole church comes alongside prayer and encouragement of repentance. And if they don't listen to you at that level, then step number four is then you treat them like a friend instead of a brother or sister. You, you look to evangelize them instead of sanctify them. You preach the gospel. You need to come to faith. You don't recognize them as a brother or sister anymore. Now, we're not going to get into all that, but today we're really focusing on step number one. How do you handle those one-on-one situations, those private situations? Because most of the times, 99% of the time, step number one is all you need. That's it. You confronted me. Rocky, I see this in your life. I'm, thank you for, you're right. I need to repent. Keep me accountable. You don't even have to say that. Just by seeing that person keeps me accountable. Right? Step number one. And, and, and how do we go about just step number one? How do we do that? Because what, is, because what is Jesus talking about right now? He's talking about loving one another, right? How do we do this in a way that's loving? Because love has to drive admonishment. Without love, it is not loving admonishment. It's just attacks. We know this. So point number three, loving admonishment is driven by love for one another. Basic. And as I was studying on love the last couple weeks, 1 Corinthians, how can you not look at 1 Corinthians 13? That's the love chapter. So if you got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This is at the heart of admonishment. This is what it's about because you love Christ and you love your brother and sister. You want what's best for your brother and sister. This is why you would even admonish. But this tells us how to admonish. This is the love chapter. I'm going to back up a little bit. I'm going to start for verse 4, but really focusing on 6 and 7. All right, love is patient, the Bible says. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5. Does not act, love does not act unbecomingly. That means rude. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked, does not take into account wrong suffer. Okay, verse six. 
Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. What does that mean? That means that if there's a sinning brother or sister, you don't glory in that. You're not like, aha, you're in sin. You don't, also, you don't glory in the fact that you have to confront them. This is a hard thing. It's like, who wants to do this? You do not rejoice in unrighteousness. This means that you're grieved for that person. You're grieved for the path that, it, that they're living. And you're like, ah, oh, I have this burden. I have to do this. I don't want to, but I have to. And the verse 6 goes on, but love rejoices with the truth. A truth, truth is a righteous life based on truth. Man, that man or woman is a, living as a sanctified saint. Praise God. That's what I want to be like. That's what our church family should be like. All right. Now verse 7 gives us steps here. This is the movement of love. This is the movement of Christ. As Pastor Victor preached a couple weeks ago, Jesus moved towards Judas. This is what the movement of Jesus is. This is basically describing how Jesus moves towards Peter. This is, describes how Jesus moves towards every single one of us. This is, describes how we should move and approach one another. So the first point, there's four points here. Love bears all things. As you look to admonish somebody, love bears all things. That, what that means is this, you cover that person. You don't want to unnecessarily expose that person for everyone to know their stuff, their sin. You want to minimize the, 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 the negative effects of sin on that person's life. So you admonish, you bear. You're not, trying to be, you're not covering up. You're not into a cover-up. But you cover them. You bear all things with them. Privately. That's why Jesus says, go to them in private, one-on-one. Keep it private. You don't want to, you want to minimize the damage that this person is, is going to face with the sin that they're entangled with. Okay? Point number two on this 1 Corinthians passage, love believes all things. What does that mean? In context, what this is saying is, is love gives the person the benefit of the doubt. Surely this must be some misunderstanding as you go to the person. Surely let me find out more information and, and get the, both sides of the story. Right? Surely perhaps even if there was sin, there's some incredible extreme circumstances where although it's not okay, I kind of understand why that happened. You know, surely you give the person the benefit of the doubt. Believes all things. There must be misinformation or misunderstanding here. So the, our posture as we go to people is that we're trying to cover them. We're trying to like understand. We're trying to get to the truth of what this is about. Third point. Love hopes all things. What does that mean? All right, I guess there is sin. All right, yes, what I heard or what I saw is true, and there's sin there. Hopes for restoration, no matter how dark it is. No matter how dark it is. Judas never had to hang himself. He didn't have to. That's as bad as it gets. He did not have to hang himself. He was disloyal to the Lord. And he had no hope of restoration because he didn't believe in Christ. He didn't believe in the gospel. There's always hope of restoration with the gospel. That's why it's the good news. That's why it's the good news. If you are in sin, there's always hope. And then you come in as an admonisher, expecting of good things for the person. You want what's best. 
You believe in the power of the gospel. This is why we're here, is it not? Because of Christ. You absolutely desire a positive outcome, and you can see it happening with the gospel. Point number four, final step here, uh, our posture, how Christ comes towards Peter, how, we, how he comes towards us, and how we should approach one another, is endures all things. This one is where it costs us, the admonisher. There's going to be a cost. Whenever you're dealing with sin, it could get messy. Whenever you're dealing with sin in people's lives, you could get drugged into it. You could be accused of being judgmental. Rocky, you're holier than thou. Who do you think you are talking about this with me? You think I've heard those things before? I mean, you could lose or strain relationships that you thought were tight. Right? You could be called unloving. You could be called all these things. It's expensive. You, love endures all things. But you know what? I love you. I'm going to stay in front of you. I'm not leaving you. I'm, I love you so much. I'm going to talk to you about these things. What did Jesus do? He loved them to the end, the Bible says, right? He loved them to the end. I mean, to the very end. That we had nothing left to give on this earth. And he resurrected. He gave up everything for Peter and Judas and all of us. Are we willing to take these shots for the people that we love so much? Are we willing to have that hard conversation? This is what love is. This is exactly what love is. It's hard. It's not easy. This is a supernatural thing. You actually care about the person, but it's going to cost you. We talk to your wife. We talk to your husband about sin issues that they're experiencing. Will you talk to your grown children that, you know what, I know you're not leaving my home, you know, but this is what I see. I'm still your dad. I'm still your mom. I love you. I love you. I love you. This is why we're talking about this. Back to what I talked about earlier. Remember I said, uh, you know, all teams. So if you're thinking about building any team, okay, this is what we're doing here at Evergreen SUV. But just for you guys to know, I say all teams need to develop a deep, profound Understanding one thing. Remember I said that. This, now I'm going to tell you what that is. This is what I believe is, is absolutely eminent and critical that we understand this as we form any team. This is for your family. This is for your ch- church. This is for any sports team. This is for your business. All right? How do you help people become good teammates is this. You need to develop a deep and profound understanding that we are a part of something greater than ourselves. That's it. It's no longer a collection of all-stars. You're a team now. And the disciples are anything but all-stars. They're common as can be, fishermen, sinners, tax collectors, terrorists even. I mean, tradesmen perhaps, farmers perhaps. This is as common as could be. How do you get a collection of people at Evergreen SGV who come from all kinds of backgrounds? And to come together is to know I'm a part of something infinitely greater than on my own. This is what this is about. Therefore, when you develop that true belief, I, this is, I am a part of Christ. He's the head, I'm part of his body. We understand that at a more profound level. Therefore, we get to develop a conviction that we need one another. We absolutely need one another. So on a, on, a, on a, let's say on a sports team, 
The players start coaching each other up. They, they keep each other accountable. They help encourage one another. They admonish one another. The coaches are there just to kind of oversee and to guide and to give the big team direction. That's still important. Preachers and pastors and elders need to keep doing this. But uh, we're not in those bedroom conversations. We're not in those uh, uh, coffee talk conversations. We're not in those how we respond to games situation or how things come up in life. I'm not in those with everyone here. How do we take care of it? Is the locker room takes care of it on the sports team. How it needs to be taken care of is in the relationships that you have with one another. Are you doing this? If you're not, A, you, do, you either don't know about this, now you can't say it anymore, or B, you've been disobedient. That's how it is. Do you have a profound understanding that I am part of something infinitely greater now? And I, it's my obligation, it's my commitment, it's my love to be able to talk to a brother or sister in this way. I mean, the best teams I had, the teams aren't, weren't very strong, the coaches are very dominant in, in their influence. The teams that have been very strong, coaches are there, definitely doing our part, but the, the players handled it. Is this happening amongst the sheep here? So point number four, big point number four is loving and admonishing shows that we need one another. If you're actively doing this, you show like, man, I, this, is, this is what I need. This is what this is about. I'm going to turn, could you, if you got your Bible, turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. The author of Hebrews puts this very clearly here. Chapter 12. I mean, chapter 3, verse 12. Just, I'm going to read three verses here. Take care, brethren, talking to the brotherhood, the sisterhood, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, but encourage one another. Doesn't that not keep showing up one another? Day after day, as long as it is still called today. Why? So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. We're part of Christ. We're part of something greater, infinitely greater. We're part of Christ. If. We hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What that means is this. True Christians persevere to the very end. So this is not saying that we need to persevere and hold on to Christ. Christ, by, the good shepherd, already holds us. That's what the Bible says, John 10, I think. It says he already holds us. The Father already holds us. But because he holds us, we will prove and show ourselves as persevering. He will produce his fruit in us. But along the way, it says, encourage one another. Brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another to be faithful. We need to encourage one another of any sin issues. John Piper says this. I thought he made it very clear in this one sentence. You're, you are God's appointed means to keep your brother or sister from falling into sin. Remember the context here, brothers and sisters. Jesus is leaving. He's physically leaving the disciples. Does he leave them alone? So, soon he'll send them the Holy Spirit. But he said, you have one another to protect one another. You have one another. I'm still here with you with one another. 
See, Christianity is definitely not a privatized uh, experience. This is a very communal experience. That's why when we sing songs, I love it. When I look around, I see people moving and singing. I'm like, man, this is great. We're together on this. That's just emblematic of who we are in Christ when we sing to the head. Judas fell away. He fell away. He didn't, unbelief leads to disobedience. He didn't believe. He did not persevere. Evidently, he was never a believer. Does not mean just because you're a pastor who preaches, who's written many books, who's famous, and all of a sudden you, you deny Christ. They were never believers. The Bible says they were never of us. If they're of us, they were never walked away from us. First John, same author. This is what happened to Judas. He loved his sin more than he loved Christ. Think about this now. Think how serious it is. You think brain surgery is serious, which it is. All right? It's very serious. But he, Judas, loved his sin. He loved money more than Christ. Jesus was doing spiritual heart surgery for him. He was trying to get in there to fix him. And if you, just like Judas, love your sin more than Christ, it will lead you to hell. That's your condition right now. If you know you're in sin... And I'm not, I'm, I'm not talking the sin of you're battling it and you're constantly repenting and just struggling. If you're just throwing your hands in, ah, God understands. He understands. He wants me to be happy. If you're there right now, if you're there right now, if you were to die today, you would be in hell right now. Doctor told me 1% chance. There's 0% chance with that. This is how serious this is. This is absolutely how serious. This is more serious than brain surgery. This is what we're called to do for one another. To help each other persevere to the end. Brothers and sisters, we need help. We have a lot of spiritual blind spots on our own. That's why this is not meant to be lived alone. That's why Jesus pointed this out. Peter was completely blind to this. He was absolutely convinced of this, that he would never deny Christ. Jesus knew better. He allowed him, he confronted him with this truth. As serious as it can be. This is what we need to do for one another since we love one another. Peter now. Peter was restored. John 21, one of my favorite, probably my favorite chapter because I see myself in Peter all the time. And Jesus restores Peter and says, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I know you love me. Do you love me? And it, it, three times. Three times he denied him. Three times he asked, do you love me? He said, yes. Jesus goes, I know you don't perfectly love me. I know you genuinely love me, though. That's what God wants. He just wants a genuine love. And Peter just went nuts. He just fell deeper in love with Christ even more in that moment. We need to help each other persevere. Two gifts that happen with admonishment. As is Hebrews 3, 12 says this, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance from firm until the end. Perseverance of the saints is a real thing that we're a part of. This proves that you are a Christian. A true Christian will be faithful to the end. Not by our own might, but by God's grace and by God's power. Not perfect love, but genuine love. This is what Christ requires. That's what Christ wants. Number two, 
as the context of Hebrews talks about, this is the author of Hebrews kind of using the illustration from the past in the Jewish history where the Israelites were marching in the wilderness. And basically, the whole generation was rendered ineffective. They were killed. A bunch of dead bodies in the wilderness. They never were able to advance the kingdom in Canaan. They never had that privilege. They never had that privilege. So perhaps you are a believer, but if you're entangled with sin, it's going to render you ineffective to advance the kingdom in the San Gabriel Valley. This is what we're talking about. This is about effectiveness, useful to the master. Useful to the master. And this, I can't, the scripture cannot make it any clearer. We're called to admonish one another. This is not a, like a kind of a, a touchy-feely message necessarily, but you love Christ so much that you care about his body. This husbands, this is what we're called to do, right? Right? What does, what does Ephesians 5 say? What does Ephesians 5 say, brothers? It should be sparking up in your head right now. In your Christ, mind of Christ, your sanctified mind, it should be popping around. What does Ephesians chapter 5 say? Ephesians chapter 5 says, washing her, the bride, the church, what Christ says first. We are to wash our brides with the word. You live for stuff like that if you're a husband. Are you washing your bride with the word? Are you sanctifying it because you love the head so much and you love your wife so much? You love the church so much. You're washing. You're driven. You're consumed. Every one of us, because of our love for Christ, the head of the church, we love him so much. We love the head so much because he loved us so much. And then just naturally, a fruit of it is that we love one another. We love his body. You can't tell a husband, I love you, but I hate your wife. That just doesn't work. Right? That doesn't work. It's like a package deal. You got to like them both. You know, that's kind of how it is. You cannot say, I love you, Christ, but I hate your body. That doesn't work. As an oxymoron. That does not work. We are part of something infinitely greater than ourselves. If you want to see it, people have asked you, how do you know, Rocky, uh, when you have a Christ-centered culture church? How do you know that? I mean, is it the numbers? No, it's definitely not that. You know, there's a bunch of non-believers that follow Jesus. We know that. That's not that. It, in your interpersonal relationships, is this happening? Are you washing one another in love? Is this happening? The head has given us one another to encourage one another, but also to take care of one another. This is a whole one another's. This whole one another is consuming my thoughts right now. I just, I just keep thinking about one another, one another. This is what this is about. Now let's get back to Peter. How did Peter end up? How did Peter end up? I'm, I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read 1 Peter 1. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this for you. And here, here's a little clue, dads and moms and team builders in different areas. All right? You know you got the people that you're taking care of when they start speaking like you. You hear what I said? You know you capture the hearts of the people that you're in charge of and that you're leading, but if they start talking like you, right? That should be an encouragement. Yeah. I mean, in coaching, when the players to the media start saying the same things that we did, probably not exactly, but their own ways, or speaking to the team and what we've been talking about, in articles, you read, well, that sounds like us. Then you capture them. That's a good sign. Let's see what Peter says here. 1 Peter 1, 22. 
22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, sincere, genuine, real love of the brethren, fervently, fervently love one another from the heart. Sounds like Jesus right there. I think Peter got it. I think Peter got it. I think Peter got it. Jesus knew exactly, our Lord knew exactly what he was doing with Peter. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was setting this man up for a big-time recovery. He knew exactly what he was doing. What love. Don't you want to be treated this way? Don't you want to rebound, be set up for an incredible upsurge? Rebound? Jesus loves Peter. Jesus demonstrated he loves Peter. Let's fervently love one another. Let's fervently love one another by admonishing one another. Look how it worked out for Peter. All of us need it. None of us are perfect. All of us struggle in sin. This is the battle that we're engaged in. Because Christ loves his church as I have loved you, Jesus says. Wow. It's about advancing the kingdom. The more you like Christ, you want to advance. Hey, let me just give you in a very practical sense. If any part of us is not functioning as well as we can, we're, we're not as good of, as strong as a, as a team. You lose. You finish seventh place, okay? That's how it works. How much more the advancement of the kingdom of God at Evergreen SUV? How much more? How much more? than a gold medal that's going to rust and fall apart someday. How much more? This is why we care, because we love Christ, we love one another. We care that every one of us is sanctified so that we have maximum impact for the kingdom, advancing the kingdom in the San Gabriel Valley. This is what it's about, becoming like Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach how you love us, Jesus. Jesus, you love us so much. Jesus, you call us to a different level of love, a love that just would defy peace at times, a love that will cost us, a love that will get us criticized, a love that will lose friendships and relationships perhaps, a love that would just have us called unloving or a judgmental or holier than thou. Jesus, they did the same thing to you. They did the same thing to you. As you hung on the cross, they mocked you. They made fun of you. They spit on you. They did the same thing to you. Father, I want to pray a prayer blessing over your saints here at Evergreen SUV. I know you love them. I know you love us. Father, I pray for a genuine fellowship to take place here at Evergreen SUV. Where we do not allow the spirit of the age or the culture of the world to dictate to us how we to take care and respond to one another. We're called to love one another deeply, admonishing one another. Father, I pray for two or three genuine friends for every single one of us who consider this place home. Two or three friends where we could talk about temptation and sin. Two or three friends that could 
talk to us, admonish of us of, of sin that they see in our lives, just like how you did Jesus for Peter. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will build your team, your body here, the one another's here, Jesus. I pray the one another's will be ringing loudly in our minds throughout the weeks. As things pop up, one another's would show up in our minds that we're connected to one another. Father, I also pray for any broken relationships here. Maybe we failed one another. We didn't do this for one another, and things have gotten hardened. As Hebrew, author Hebrews talks, we've been hardened to sin. I pray for softening of the hearts so that we will be able to build up one another, restore one another. Jesus, who are we to hide behind anything? You see everything anyway. So, Father, I pray a prayer of blessing over the church family here. God, you're so good. As we deep mind the depths of your scriptures, there's more and more treasures that pop. There's stuff that I'm talking about that I even write down on this paper. Lord, you're so good. Help us to love your word. As, oh, how I love your law because I love the lawgiver. I love you. So, Father, I pray for our church family that we will love you more and love one another more. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.